You are listening to the Court Report Podcast. This episode is hosted by Christopher James Costello of Temple University and Blake Thomas Hendel of the George Washington University. My name is Chris Costello, and I am the president of Phi Alpha Delta at Temple University. I'm a current senior legal studies major, and I'm applying to law schools in this cycle. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Blake Kindle, and I am the uh, current president of the Law and Policy Society at the George Washington University. I myself am a senior studying international affairs with a concentration in security policy, and I also intend to be applying to law school either this year or in the next year. So uh, let's start off, Chris, by saying, you know, why, why are we doing this podcast? Well, we definitely have a lot of common interests and they all lie within the law. Uh, Blake and myself have been planning on going to law school for pretty much the past year and a half, two years at this point. And we have been talking to each other for years, trying to get a podcast together related to the law. And this is pretty much the culmination of those thoughts over the years. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, even a year ago, before I transferred to GW from the University of Washington out in Seattle, uh, I was studying aerospace engineering. I never thought I was going to be studying uh, or planning on going to law school, uh, let alone changing majors and, you know, flying across the country. But um, I got to say, like, uh, you know, the past year studying for this uh, LSAT and just kind of understanding more about law school and what the actual profession is going to be like, I think, uh, that, that transition is going to be worthwhile. And, um, but I guess uh, let's continue on saying, um, you know, what are we going to be doing in this podcast along, aside from, you know, why we're doing it? What are we going to be doing? What are we going to be discussing? So what can we expect? It's, it's pretty much going to be guest speakers, whether it's law school admissions officers, whether it's current active lawyers, maybe even professors. We're going to have law school advice coming from Blake and I personally as we go through this admission cycle this year, next year, and the following years to come. Uh, we'll give our advice on LSAT preparation, and we'll much more like to focus on court analysis, specifically the Supreme Court. Yeah, just kind of diving into how the interchange between uh, laws and policies affect, um, you know, just the daily, the daily person, their daily life. And uh, it's also it's larger implications for society in general. But um, that's kind of our purpose is to bridge the divide between the worlds of policy and law. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, organizations out there kind of focus in specifically on one or the other. But there's a uh, very few that kind of bridge that world. So we wanted to uh, kind of dive in a little bit more on the policy side and um, see how textual changes are implemented into our legal system and um, our other systems uh, that keep our society running. Um, but I guess uh, our experience so far in this uh, longer process, which we know very little comparatively, has been uh, centered around the LSAT. So I guess what we can do is start off by kind of briefly going over what the um, parameters are for someone who is considering applying to law school. Um, what do they need to do to get ready? What would they need to do before they apply? Because we're we're about at that stage now where you know we're we're seniors in college. Mm -hmm. It's uh you know the prime time is coming around. You know late fall, early winter. Um, so I guess let's lay out what people would need to go through to get there. Well, you definitely got to take that LSAT, and that's the one thing you really have to focus on above honestly mostly everything else in your application. The LSAT is what is, in my opinion, and 
the opinion of most other people, the most heavily weighted object on your application to law mm-hmm. schools. Uh, you know, they all say go T14 or bust. And those T14 schools like to see, you know, really high LSAT scores. And you can have a lower GPA and get into these top tier schools. So it's not always having a super high GPA. It's understandable if it's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But for the LSAT, they kind of want you to be, or at least yeah. as close as you can. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, for a lot of the a lot of the pre-med students, the guys going off to, uh, to med school, uh, for them, like the MCAT, which I guess is their equivalent mm-hmm. of like the LSAT, um, their test score is as important as their GPA. Um, so there's a very, there's very little margin between those two as like key metrics for applying, you know, beyond like uh, you know, service hours or uh, letters of recommendation, you know, your, your uh, everything outside your GPA and test score. But with the LSAT, you're right. The it's, it's worth a, a whole lot more than your GPA, which is crazy. Cause you know, your entire four-year career, you might switch your major. You might not know exactly what it is you want to do. But if you do come upon the decision where you want to try applying to law school, you know, taking into consideration everything in the past, you know, three years up until you apply, um, that all that combined is, you know, it's important, but it's it's outshined by one singular three-hour-long test, <laughs> which is crazy. But yeah, um, it's a. Uh, you know, for both of us, for, I guess we should probably say that we took the LSAT in June. Uh, mm-hmm. We're not going to get in trouble by exposing anything, just, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of going over what we did. You know, we spent, um, we started studying what, August of, uh, 2021. Uh, yeah. So, so it was like late it. summer. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a study for the LSAT during the academic year is a very difficult job, even for you oh, know yeah. a lot of older people who are, you know, maybe deciding to go to law school later in life and they're, they're, they're working a job and they can only do, you know, certain hours for studying. Um, it's brutal. You know, I, I, I think no one's under the false impression that the LSAT is like, you know, it's, it's obviously made out to be very difficult, but I think most people assume like, yeah, everyone says that, but you know, it's not going to be that bad in reality, but um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> It's it's tough. It's um yeah. it's something where you you really can't just go in and wing it. Um, you have to kind of learn all the strategies, especially when it comes to logic games. You need to learn how to chart, how to gui- diagram effectively, or else you'll kind of really struggle. And you only have thirty five minutes per section, and there are three you know graded sections of the LSAT and one ungraded. So you're taking four sections, thirty five minutes, and you barely have time to answer these questions you've got to be you know one after another in quick succession with you know little to no margin for error if you want to get one of these high scores so that's why we really like to stress that you have to prepare well in advance and you know most people say like three months uh preparation time before your exam is you know well enough if you're doing it every single day you know very regimented but you know it's never too early to start and that's what I always tell people, whoever asks me for advice, um, when it's in my pre-law fraternity, they'll come to me and say, when should I start preparing? And I'll tell them right now, um, you know, you could be a freshman and learning this over time will only help. It's never too early to start preparing. Right, exactly. I mean, the, uh, the good thing too, is that you don't need a specific major or to be studying or really any direct area um, in order to uh, go to law school, which is great because then, you know, you can pursue whatever you're personally interested in 
and then uh, you know also pursue the LSAT as like an additional uh, factor. But you're not discounted from pursuing any particular major. It's just you know everyone has their different you know um, interests and abilities. But you're right. I mean, it's something that uh, you know you can the skills you learn for it. Sometimes they're inept or they're developed throughout your entire life. I, I mean, and you're like you're reading comprehension abilities, your ability to like think critically and analyze. You know, there there there's a certain extent to which you can improve those mm -hmm. LM. How you can do that, especially in a standardized test format like such as the LSAT. But um, for a lot of it, uh, especially in the logic game section, it's it's something that your brain is not exposed to on a regular basis in how you like, compartmentalize information organize it and then you know understand it internally but mm -hmm. it's something that's you can really develop a better understanding of it really quickly over time relative to uh logical um reasoning and reading comprehension exactly uh because it's just if you, it's, it's just really a thing of exposure and how much time you're going to spend with it yeah well, um, what they you know. sorry to interrupt but what they, no, what they do say is um the one section that you can improve on most substantially on the LSAT is the logic games. You know, with reading comprehension, there's little to no improvement you can honestly make with that. Uh, it's kind of very methodical and it's just the same process of reading any other section of any paper you've ever been exposed to in your life. You just have to know how to, you know, digest that. And, you know, you can obviously make small improvements, but you can't really study for reading comprehension, uh, logical reasoning. It's um, you can definitely make some improvements here and there if you understand arguments better. But logic games is definitely the one section where you can make your most biggest improvements on. And that's why I always recommend people just really, really stressing heavily on this new logic games um, but this is all going to be thrown into uh, fire here soon, you know, trial by fire, because this new LSAT after this testing year um, yep. is supposedly getting rid of the uh, logic game section. So, so I've heard, yeah. Not exactly sure what's to come for people who, you know, test outside of the uh, 22 testing year, to be honest. For, uh, for those who haven't uh, had the experience of taking the LSAT or who uh, aren't quite sure about, you know, whether or not they want to apply to law school. The LSAT, the Law School Admissions Test, is administered uh, between every, what is it, August and June, I believe, is the testing August year. August and uh, June is usually, August, yeah. yeah. August to June. And it's typically, if it's not every month, it's every other month. They happen pretty frequently. Um, ever Since since COVID uh, started, um, they switched into a form of the LSAT called the LSAT Flex, which was a an abbreviated version of the LSAT, which was taken online. Uh, the format of the LSAT is still online, but it's changed a couple times uh, since the pandemic. The Flex, I think, used to have only three sections. I think they were all graded, but it was like a very shortened version. Uh, we took it in June, and the current format is there's four sections, uh, one experimental, but you would do the you have a, a year to do the writing section, mm -hmm. uh, and then you would uh, only be able to receive your score and, and uh, once that was submitted and uh, verified. But um. I guess uh, the, the other important thing to mention too is the the score bracket range because this is a huge part. Uh, like we we're talking earlier about, you know, the weight of the LSAT and admissions um, alongside GPA. And I guess we should probably go over. You know, everyone hates mm -hmm. talking about the numbers. I, I get I get anxious <laughs> looking at it. You know, trying to guesstimate. You know, especially where I can end up uh, applying to law school and be effective in uh, the admissions process. But I guess we should go over the uh, the the test score bracket and also comparatively 
GPAs that would probably match up towards, uh, you know, some examples kind of lay out the law or lay out the uh, terrain in terms of uh, the GPA to LSAT score kind of a relationship there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to basically go over the LSAT for anyone who doesn't know, that test is scored out of a 120 being the lowest and a 180 being the highest. And 180s are very hard to get. Um, but these top 14 law schools, you know, the coveted top 14, usually try to take people who are likely 170 or above. Um, there are some exceptions. I believe the 25th percentile at University of Pennsylvania, uh, Cary School of Law, for example, I believe their 25th percentile is a 168. Okay. So it's not like it's impossible. If you get a 160s, it's still possible for you to get into a top 14 school, but you have to make up for that difference in LSAT score everywhere else on your resume, right? You have to have a lots mm -hmm. of volunteer experience. Your GPA needs to be outstanding and you need to have, you know, outside activities that can support your interests in the law and show you as a strong prospective candidate mm -hmm. for these law schools. They like to see leadership. They like to see that you demonstrate an ability for anything that law schools find valuable. So, you know, logical thinking, like maybe you're a volunteer somewhere and you, you had to use your brain. You had to make like these tough analytical decisions. They like to see that. So you really have to make up for it if you're not going to get into the 170s. But if you have a 165 and above, I would definitely still recommend applying because even though you're below most of these schools, 25th percentiles, that doesn't mean you're out of the picture. You could get waitlisted. You can get in. You might even get in. <laughs> Who even knows? These schools sometimes are completely unpredictable, mm -hmm. but the most safe bet is to get yourself in that 170 or above bracket. Um, yeah. That, uh, that 170 bracket, um, for those who might not know, is about, I guess on average, you know, it fluctuates the test score to, you know, um, percentile, because uh, that you know, difficulty always varies, you know, the batch of people taking the test, et cetera. But uh, that, that 170 mark out of 180, that's, a, that's around 5% of people get uh, around a 170 or above, right? Mm -hmm. Am I right in saying that? Right around yeah, 5%? Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. 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 Um, well, I, I'd say uh, definitely with the, you know, it, for law school in particular, it's, it's, you know, I guess really any field you go into, any major you study, it's not enough. It's not enough anymore to just go through the motion, just take your classes and get your diploma. You know, if you want to be really competitive and in getting into the best possible school, if you know for certain you want to go into, uh, you know, a graduate school, you know, whether it's uh, business or, uh, or law or whatever it may be, that you really cannot afford to spend that much more time kind of exploring or, you know, not really setting yourself up to have as best a record as possible, because you never know if you're going to change your mind. And, you know, to change that record is very difficult uh, over mm -hmm. a short period of time, you know, um, you know, we're, we're the position now where, you know, a lot of people will mention that, you know, college or the undergrad experience is a time where, you know, you start off not really, you know, you might know what you want to do. You might not know. You spend the first year or two going through the motions, getting, you know, your gen eds out of the way, trying to find, to find a, something you're interested in that, you know, you might want to pursue further. But, you know, at this level, if you want to get into, like, again, we, we've been mentioning this, uh, this T14, the top 14 law schools, it's uh, like a coveted rank. 
you know, at the top level, they're all uh, very close in, you know, their ability mm-hmm. and in their different programs. But um, yeah, it's, it's not enough anymore to just uh, have a diploma. You need to really go out and be doing more. You need to show that you're interested in the community. You need to show that you are actually interested beyond the course, beyond, you know, the predicted wage you might be earning that you're actually going to be, you know, interested in becoming change because that is what the legal field is. You know, you're mm-hmm. able to take a, you know, you can really do anything with a JD, a Juris Doctor degree, whether you're actually a practicing lawyer or attorney, or, you know, a lot of government officials also have law degrees. It's, it's something that I think more people should really pursue. It's, it's difficult, but it's, um, I don't know, it's applicable and it's, it's just good life skills in general. Yeah, it's valuable. And, you know, nowadays, you know, especially with the law being as important as it is, you know, law is obviously always important, but I feel like nowadays it is, you know, publicized and streamlined through the media all the time. And most people don't really understand exactly what they're seeing. And for you to have a JD and be able to understand, like, this is what this law means, or even partake in these laws, you can be Mm -hmm. a politician. You know, I think there's a stat somewhere that uh, 75% or more of our presidents have had a JD or practice law to some capacity. Um, So it's obvious that if you want to make a change in this world, or at least politically, um, having a JD is definitely one way to get there. And it definitely will help you for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, undergrad, the undergrad experience here, no matter what degree you are, typically is around, you know, four years. But whereas uh, people going into medical school will be in school for between, uh, I think it's eight to 12 more years, depending on um, Mm -hmm. not beyond, what was it beyond residency? I forget exactly what it is. But um, for a law school, it's three years where the, uh, the first year is essentially equivalent to finishing like gen eds in undergrad, uh, you know, public law, uh, torts, you know, contracts, um, kind of the, some of the, the more fundamental uh, elements of the constitution. Um, but then you start specializing right off in your second and third year. But again, to really be, you know, at, to, to get yourself in the best position to do well and find success in the field, you really want to be going to as best school as possible. And then to find success within that school, within your class, uh, to open as many doors as possible in, um, into your fledgling legal career mm-hmm. as a uh, first year associate. Um, exactly. you know, you, Chris, you're interested in going into corporate law and, uh, what is it? The, yeah. the first year, the competitive first year salary, for yeah. big corporate law, I think is uh, just increased up to what? I think 210,000 for a first year? Um, actually a little bit more. Um, from the most recent publication that I read on average, this is in New York City. So obviously it is gonna fluctuate depending on where these corporate lawyers are. Um, a large percentage of them do practice in New York City. So the current starting salary for first year associates graduating from these, you know, top 14 law schools is hovering somewhere around 260,000. 260. Blake. Wow. Yeah. That's very, wow. very big money. We're talking for, some, for a first year salary, first, first year, year after graduating mm-hmm. from, from law school. That is a, uh, I mean, yeah, you'll, most people will probably take on <laughs> 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 sorry, considerable loans. But uh, still, to be able to pay that, to get that much money within the first year, that's, 
I mean, yeah. beyond the actual profession, that's, I mean, the monetary incentive is definitely there, but to also have the ability to like effectively create change uh, beyond just, you know, voicing your opinion, you can actually have an impact. That's a, that's a pretty good combination. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it all ties back to going to one of these, you know, elite schools. Um, but this isn't us, you know, saying don't go to any other law school that isn't T14. Because, you know, that's not always the case. If you want to practice locally, you can go to any school out there and they will be able to provide you with an education that is more than substantial enough to make you a good lawyer. But these top 14 schools can get you a job anywhere in the country. Whereas if you go to these local ones, it's more so that you'll stay in that area. Yeah, that is true. Um, I would say on competitiveness, though, you know, uh, most people, most undergrads experience the, you know, uh, the the common plight of every high schooler in applying a lot to uh, college, their first undergrad institution, the the stress of figuring out all the information they need, sending out applications, figuring out, oh, is, you know, where am I going? What school do I want to go to? I want to go to the best school possible, you know, the fun school. I want to have, uh, what it's all based on what kind of college experience you want to have, but you also mm -hmm. want to go to a good institution. Now with law school, yeah, it's absolutely the case, you know, in what, um, I guess the more renowned, the more prestigious, the more, the higher the quality programs, the uh, subsequently higher wage, the more sought after you will be, depending on where you are in the class. But I will say though that um, for most law schools throughout the country, and I think there's just under 200 accredited law schools throughout the U.S., um, a lot of law schools will tailor their students to the local law demand of the area. Mm -hmm. Based, I mean, so it's not just the level of, you know, recognition and renown that you gain in, you know, the specific program you do at whatever institution, but it's, it's other factors that, in, that are uh, incorporated, not just based on the school itself. So there's, there's quite a lot to take in, um, but, you know, a lot, most universities, most law schools teach the same programs. It's more so the more, um, I guess, uh, niche areas of law. Uh, mm -hmm. such as like, um, you know, uh, famous, uh, what is it, defamation cases, like the Johnny Depp case, uh, those lawyers were trained in, I think it was a, um, oh, what is it, like celebrity defamation? It was a weird facet of law, but not like a common one. Um, so they, there are schools that uh, might be lower in rank, but they'll have more specialized programs. Exactly. Just like uh, even here, my school, Temple University, our law school is actually ranked number one in trial advocacy. So anytime you see a lawyer in a movie who is, you know, in the courtroom arguing for their client, that is trial advocacy, which Temple happens to be ranked number one in. <laughs> However, that is separate from the overall law school ranking, where I believe they are sitting somewhere in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, for me, I, at the George Washington University, our law school, I believe, is currently somewhere around 25 but then again, they have, you know, within that, there's specific programs that they're ranked, uh, like international law or, sorry, intellectual property law. I believe they're, I think, six or so. And they have also special programs like uh, security law. It's, um, it, it all depends, you know, uh, it depends on where you are, what you want to do. But um, I guess for us beyond that, you would have your, in terms of the application process, you know, finding what law school you want to go to. Mm -hmm. So Assuming for most people that might not know whether they want to go into a law or maybe those who do, assuming you're now uh, a junior 
uh, getting ready to go to law school, getting the, you know, the next year between, you know, fall of your junior year to fall of your senior year, the changes that are going to happen. So you have your GPA and that's on a daily basis that it's subliminally passes you, your level of wherever you are in your GPA that, you know, it's, it is what it is, but your LSAT is something, a huge factor that you can directly impact on a sh- relatively short time period and change uh, how many doors you open into your professional career. But um, I guess what uh, what else would be counted beyond your GPA and your LSAT score? Yeah, so beyond your GPA and beyond the LSAT, there is your resume, there's your, you know, your statement letter. Uh, I not sure the exact term for it, but the letter that you submit. Um, there's also a diversity statement that you can write, uh, which is, you know, how am I different? You know, even if you're the most, you know, kind of basic applicant out there, um, from what I've been told is always write a diversity statement because there's a way that you can stand out that maybe you don't have, you know, they don't know, you know, these law schools admissions officers don't know your entire life story and they don't necessarily want to hear it, but they want to hear what makes you different. Um, what makes you stand out from everyone else? Because right. everyone else, their life stories might be a little similar, but there's definitely things that makes everyone unique. And those are some of the things they like to hear in diversity statements, for sure. Yeah, and um, there's also a, a neat little fast about the application process. You know, um, it, I, I should uh, mention this beforehand that, yes, this whole application process might be quite a bit of work. But the more work you put in, it is a direct is a direct correlation to how many doors you open, what level of uh, prestigiousness you might have in whatever university you want, uh, whatever law school you want to go to. Um, it, it does matter. Uh, it, going the extra mile and really, uh, you know, focusing in on the little things will have a massive, massive outcome. Yeah, uh, these these law school admissions officers when they're sitting in this boardroom and they're going over applications. Um, I believe I read a statistic somewhere where, you know, they have to go through so many applications that they'll take maybe a minute, two minutes at most to kind of breeze through your application. And, you know, you have to make your application stand out that within one minute, you know, I'd aim for a minute or less that they are intrigued they're hooked they want to know more about you they want you in their school so that's why you know your personal statement has to stand out has to be stellar and so does a diversity statement if you decide to write one um and you know if there's any discrepancies in your gpa or fluctuations of that sort you want to have an addendum and for those who don't know an addendum is pretty much just an explanation for something so let's say in your freshman year you, your mom got in a car accident and uh, you suffered throughout school. <laughs> you couldn't think about anything else except your mom and your GPA suffered. Um, in that addendum, you can say, here's what happened during that time. As you can see, it was a once, uh, once, once in a lifetime thing. Um, and it only impacted my freshman year. And throughout then, throughout the remaining years of my undergraduate education, I was able to, you know, remain dean's list every semester, have good grades, and I've never wavered from that point. And that's something they take into consideration very heavily when reading your applications. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that they they do have quite a few applicants to go through, but 
um, you know, it's more so in the case of if you come close to being on the like a on the fence of whether or not you are meet the parameters for for admission, uh, whether you versus someone else, that those little details will be the things that set you aside. Uh, maybe not on the whole. It kind of depends on where you might fall in terms of your your GPA and your LSAT. But the you know a, a personal statement or an addendum explaining something. Uh, if you if the the decision comes down to you and someone else, that mm-hmm. that might mean the difference between you know your admission versus theirs. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, if you let's say for example that you have a 170 LSAT and your GPA is 3.82 right? That's pretty good. Um, That's really good. (laughs) It is really good. It is really good. Uh, And I'm getting these stats off the 25th percentile of Harvard. (laughs) Um, But let's Um, say those are your stats, right? And you're applying to Harvard. And so is someone else who has the same exact stats. They have a 170. They have a 3.82 GPA, right? Mm -hmm. The difference that's going to make you stand out from them, well, granted, they could admit both of you and who knows? Maybe they would, but maybe they won't, right? Maybe they have a set <laughs> amount of people in that 25th percentile that they want to come in the school. That could be. So how are you going to stand out? It's your personal statement. It's that diversity statement. It's those addendums. You need to be able to say, here's why I'm different. Here's why I am the best candidate for your law school. Here's mm-hmm. why I would make a difference in your law school. Um, and like Blake said, that is the difference from being admitted, being waitlisted, even being taken off the waitlist and being denied. So these other parts of the, you know, application, they're not something to just kind of, you know, put together last minute, like, oh, it's the day before I should apply. I'm just going to write up a quick, you know, personal statement uh, and just shoot it out there. No, they, they can see right through that. Um, it has to be one of the most professional things you've ever written. And it has to be enticing. It has to be convincing. You have to use your skills as a prospective lawyer to convince that admissions council why you should be accepted in that school, why you would be a good candidate for that school. So while the LSAT and the GPA are you know, the ultimate determiners of admissions in most cases, um, these personal statements and addendums and diversity statements should definitely not just be thrown to the side, um, especially when you maybe don't have a super high LSAT. Um, you know, the 170 is a good LSAT. So let's say, for example, you have like 165. You really want to kind of promote yourself very heavily if you're trying to apply to Harvard because their 25th percentile is 170. You're below that. So you are going to have to fight for a spot and your that fighting is going to be done through those statements. Mm-hmm. Now, so we have the GPA, we have the addendums and we have the, uh, the LSAT, but um, there's also the facet of, uh, of letters of recommendation mm, and yes. also uh, outside experience. Now, if I were applying and, you know, maybe, maybe I haven't thought about it until, you know, senior year and, you know, I all of a sudden, you know, I, 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 th- I was thinking about it over the summer and I started applying as I started doing a little bit of research, started, you know, studying for the LSAT, got really into it, but I'm a senior now and I don't have any experience. I don't have any, I don't have any volunteer hours or I maybe didn't go to uh, intern at 
some legal firm. I, I couldn't find anything close. Uh, what, what, what would someone like that do? Well, in that position, what you can do to shine through is have, like you said, letters of recommendation to display, you know, your ability. And in the most case, they like to see, you know, letters of recommendation from professors. Um, so it's your senior year, you know, it, you're, you're applying right now. Um, the only people who can really testify should you have not, you know, partaken in volunteer opportunities or um, anything law related, let's say you, you didn't, you passed up an opportunity to work as a, um, a legal analyst or something like that over the summer as an internship. The one way they can learn more about you is from letters of recommendation. And this is something you really have to start considering early on in your college career. Um, I, you know, I'd say sophomore, junior year, you really have to start building connections with these professors, um, you know, because you don't typically want to get, you know, a professor who you had little, no experience with. They kind of, you know, you didn't partake too much in the class. They don't really know who you are. They're not going to write you a strong letter. Um, mm -hmm. These law schools like to see really strong letters. They want to see that, you know, these professors and the professors knew you. And not only that they knew you, but they knew of your work, your ability, your aptitude, and just your overall, you know, characteristics as a student. And that's what can shine in an application is mm -hmm. if you have multiple professors or multiple, um, let's say, employers, let's say you had a job that was, you know, unrelated to the law, you can have a previous employer still give you a letter of recommendation, recommendation uh, excuse me, um, to, you know, display your ability. And these are things that law schools really like to look for. Uh, I know myself, I have four at the moment. Um, that, that's a little bit overkill. So don't think that you need four letters of recommendation. I know for most people, it's, uh, it's hard because in these big universities, like uh, the big state schools or anything like that, it's hard to build bonds with professors. It's hard for to, you know, have a personal connection with them. Um, so finding multiple letters of recommendation can be hard for some people. Uh, but luckily for me, uh, my classroom sizes are small. I'm able to demonstrate my ability as a student. And I have been lucky enough to have four fantastic people write me letters of recommendation. But that's definitely something law schools like to see. And I believe it. there is a minimum that you need at least one or two, depending on the law school you're applying to. Yeah, exactly. I would say, uh, especially for those the people in those uh, those huge lecture rooms of three, 500 people, uh, you know, getting getting a personal connection with that with that professor, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> but I will say you <laughs> you mentioned it, uh, kind of snuck it in there. Uh, it's so important to uh, to just show up every day, essentially. Uh, again, making those impressions on your professors, um, that's something that that's just uh, that is you. It's it's really hard to fake that. So you know, to really um, put the effort in to uh, really go above and beyond. Uh, not even above and beyond, but as long as you're, you know, really, uh, you know, having a real relationship with your professor and really like interested and involved and active in what you guys are doing, that's really going to go a long way later on. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're like, they, they, they're excited to write letters of recommendation. Like it's an honor to write, mm -hmm. to recommend yeah. someone, especially someone that you're teaching because, oh, they're like, they're coming to me. Why, why they, you know, they've had all these professors throughout their entire college career they're coming back to me for a letter of recommendation that's a, that's an honor 
And, um, but again, like, like you, like you mentioned it very clearly that the level of, uh, of a relationship you have with whoever you want to write these letters of recommendation is critical because that's how well they're going to be able to write you a really powerful, really intimate letter. That's really going to go a long way than a, a lot much further anyway, than a more generic, uh, kind of impersonal letter. Uh, mm-hmm. and again, that, that will really, uh, send a message to the, those admissions officers reviewing your file, uh, from a professional, uh, lecturer that's, uh, that's gone through, you know, thousands of people's before you. Exactly. And they like to see, you know, letters from obviously professors who, you know, have background in the law too. Um, but obviously this is not, you know, that's not, you don't have to go find professors who have JDs, uh, because obviously people, you know, are different majors out there. You can be an English major and get letters of rec from, you know, different English uh, professors out there. Uh, but in my example, um, since my major is legal studies, almost every single one of my professors is a lawyer as well. So they're able to speak um, as to my ability to, you know, work in this field from what they've seen in their classroom and from what they've experienced in work as a lawyer themselves to write a letter of recommendation tailored to these law schools, given their experience. So it's always good to consider, you know, who the professor is and maybe what their background is um, and maybe what schools they've gone to and what connections they have, um, because that could be something, you know, a letter of recommendation from, let's say, some Harvard lawyer could mean a lot if you're applying to Harvard. Um, but it all, you know, it's a, it all depends. It all depends exactly your major, you know, where you're applying to and what kind of professors you've been exposed to. Exactly. And I would say, uh, you know, it's important to have uh, academic letters of recommend, recommendation from uh, from your, your closest uh, professors that you've had throughout your college experience, but also uh, with both inside and outside of university, getting people who actually have a meaningful relationship with you in terms of like your story. And what I mean by the story is, I guess, in relation to both your, your entire academic journey, as well as your life up into the point of where you apply, mm-hmm. you know, what changes have you gone through as a person that have led you up to this very moment? Um, you know, if you've shifted your major, did, did you have a trend of, you know, exploring new things and then you found whatever your, um, whatever your undergrad degree might be in pre-law and suddenly you really blossomed and took off and started doing a lot better? Uh, is there a trend of something or is there a story of something? Have you overcome something mm-hmm. or what, what adversity have you faced? Uh, that's really, really big now. And um, especially if you are lacking more so on the end of like of uh, experience with the law, which is which can be difficult to get, that's really going to be uh, something that's helpful. It makes you more of a human and less of an applicant to the admissions board officers. Exactly. Um, I know in, in my example, uh, you know, before college, I actually was an electrician for about, you know, a year and a half, two years. And, you know, that's something I'm really trying to play heavily into on my applications. You know, my diversity statement is going to be all about how I was a blue collar worker. And, you know, I wasn't exactly sure what to go in life until, you know, um, I decided to go back to school and I found a passion for the law. And, you know, you can play to your strong suits in everything in life. And I use, you know, my time as a blue collar uh, worker to demonstrate, you know, my, you know, 
ambitions, my, you know, hardworking spirit. And, you know, that's demonstrated by one of my letters of recommendation who happened to be my former employer. And even through uh, a professor who I had for um, an environmental law class, um, I was able to constantly connect my, you know, prior experiences in the workforce to the classroom. And uh, I was able to do that so much so that the professor, you know, was even telling me that I'm doing law school level work as an undergraduate. And he came to me about writing a letter of recommendation for me before I had even come to him. So, you know, being able to, you know, work on those strong suits and have all your letters kind of tie together in a way, you know, obviously you're not going to know what these professors are going to write about, um, but they can all tie together and support your story, support who you are as an applicant. And overall, that is the best thing that you can have um, to support you and support your image to these law schools. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I would say uh, it's 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 not always in your power to have, uh, you know, the, the best, uh, you know, potential contacts for uh, letters of recommendation. But I would say uh, in the entire process, especially in the process of uh, getting, you know, recommenders is honestly just be genuine and really sell your you as um, a potential law school attendee. You know, they want to see people who are really going to thrive at their mm -hmm. law school. And for a most part, it's, it's pretty uniform, you know, um, they just want to see, you know, high performing academics who really are passionate about what they do and are actually going to have a market impact on the legal career on the legal, uh, community. But, um, I guess, okay. So that's, that's pretty much, uh, every material that someone would need to apply to law school. So we have our letters of recommendation. We have our addendums to our entire package, our GPA and our LSAT, along with maybe a diversity statement, if we so choose. Mm -hmm. And then we send that all out, uh, probably right, I guess, around this time of year, right? Late fall, yeah. probably a yep. good time. So uh, applications, I, I know for this cycle, open September 1st. Um, and then you pretty much have, you know, you, you want to apply. You know, they say the best time to apply is before Thanksgiving. Um, if you apply after that, you know, it's getting a little more risky because for certain universities or certain law schools, I should say, um, they are rolling admissions. So you could apply September and know where you're going by November, potentially. <laughs> um, so they could have a certain amount of people already admitted by the time you apply, should you decide to apply, let's say like in March, I think March might even, I'm not sure some deadlines I believe are in March. And I think one of the few that I am aware of right now is um, uh, Georgetown. I believe Georgetown oh, okay. Okay. ends in uh, in March. So um, definitely, definitely what I would suggest um, is to apply as soon as you can. If your application is ready, if you're comfortable, if you have everything ready as early as possible. Um, and especially if you plan on applying early decision, which that can almost be an entire podcast episode in yeah. of itself. Yep. Um, <laughs> it will be. We'll, it will. Yes. We'll, we'll make that, we'll make that a point. Um, but, you know, if you want to do early decision, you got to, you know, apply before a certain deadline. Um, I know one that I'm considering very heavily is Northwestern. Um, their okay. deadline is November 15th. However, you have to be uh, interviewed before that deadline. 
So oh. you need to realistically apply November 1st um, to be able to get be scheduled for an interview before November 15th. If you wow. don't have an interview before the November 15th deadline, uh, your application for early decision is not considered complete. So you won't be considered for early decision. Wow. Um, and like I said, this is a whole nother topic we can dive into because I have a lot to say about early decision. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something where this could be an hour long, two hour long podcast. If we oh. decide to dive in to early decision, there's so many, <laughs> you, know, cons- you know, factors you have to consider. Um, but that's, that, that's the overall theme is apply as early as you can. And what they say is the earlier you apply, um, the more, you know, your odds of acceptance are higher. Um, so you need to, you know, take that into consideration when you're sending applications out to these schools. Okay. Yeah. And I would say uh, before we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hold off on uh, diving into, you know, the timing and, you know, further, further admissions processes, but for those who are either considering, you know, applying to law school in the next year or two, or who those who are on the fence, you know, maybe not so sure, I would say the biggest thing that you can do for yourself until, you know, you become a junior is, really focus on, you know, having good relations with your professors, making sure, you know, you're setting your record up to be uh, mm-hmm. as conducive as possible for your future success. Cause that's something that you can change on a daily basis. And uh, you know, that becomes a habit. And then by the time you're ready to apply, or maybe you, you change your mind, no matter what, you're in a good position and that can't hurt. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Uh, I think we'll leave it for that here. Uh, but uh, again, thank you, Christopher Costello of uh, Phi Alpha Delta <laughs> at Temple University. Thank you so much, man. Thank you, Blake Thomas Hendel of the George Washington University. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that wraps it for our first episode. Thank you for listening to the Court Report podcast, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye.